Uh, For tonight, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 8 and uh, also Deuteronomy 27. I'm actually going to start in Deuteronomy 27, so if you want to head there first, and then we'll make our way through the book of Joshua, we'll be in chapter 8. But I'm going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 27. And while you're turning there, let me just give a little bit of a backdrop and then we'll, we'll pray. So again, the children of Israel are coming into the promised land that God had sworn on oath to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But after 400 years of slavery, there is an entirely new generation that is about to come into the promised land that has never been there before. They will be led by Joshua, not by Moses. Moses will hand the baton of ministry to Joshua by the instruction of the Lord. Joshua is Moses' protege. He will then have this responsibility of leading the people into the promised land. But first, they're going to have to dispossess people who have occupied the land in their absence for the 400 years that they were slaves in Egypt. And unfortunately, the people who are occupying the land will not turn to God, only by rare exception. You see, Rahab turned to God. She was a part of the people who lived in Jericho. But others who lived there, the Bible says that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full extent. And after 400 years, God then is going to judge them for their lack, for their refusal of turning to Him, turning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though God's reputation had preceded Him. They had heard about the parting of the Red Sea. They had heard about the miracles of God. They knew, Rahab testified to the fact that her own people had understood the miraculous hand of God and that the Lord God Almighty was and is the only God. For that reason, she was saved. She was rescued. But when the rest of the people turned their backs on God and refused to surrender to Him, there was judgment. And so as the Israelites enter the promised land, coming from the um, east going west, coming from what is today modern Jordan, crossing the Jordan River into what is today modern Israel, the first uh, city that they come to when they cross over the Jordan River and they conquer is the city of Jericho. Again, that's the city from which Rahab uh, came uh, from. And so they, they take the city of Jericho. The next city that they take is the city of Ai, but it does not go well for them because God had said to them, when you take Jericho, you are not to touch any of the plunder. Only the silver, gold, and bronze is to be taken from Jericho and placed in my treasury, says the Lord. But unfortunately, one guy by the name of Achan, we call him mistaken Achan, took some of the plunder from Jericho, and as a result, it brought disaster upon the people of Israel. So that when they took the city of Ai, the people of Ai took them instead. It was the first record of casualties in war that the Israelites suffered because of their disobedience. There was hidden sin in the camp, and God had to uproot it. And once God exposed Achan and exposed the sin of his rebellion against God, then his whole family was eliminated. They, were, they, they served to be a principle, okay? God used this occasion to serve as a principle of his, of his judgment, that he is a just and a holy God. You don't mess with God. And so Achan, in his disobedience, sinned against God. As a result, he and his family uh, suffered the consequences. They were killed. They were burned, all of their possessions too. And then the Israelites went back and took Ai. And after they had then taken Ai, there's this place here in Joshua 8, but first we're going to read from Deuteronomy 27, where Joshua then realizes now that we are in the promised land, 
we must, after having taken Jericho and Ai, we must consecrate ourselves before the Lord. And we must renew the covenant we have with God that God has with us. And the reason he's going to do this is because there's a backstory, and the backstory is found in Deuteronomy chapter 27. So if you have your Bibles open there, let me first pray, and then we'll read from Deuteronomy 27, starting at verse 1. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for this time in your word, and we pray that you would strengthen our hearts as we look into these things tonight. We thank you, Lord, that even though we're reading about things that happened thousands of years ago, your truth is timeless, and you were the same yesterday, today, and forever. So teach us, Lord, encourage us, challenge us where we need it. We love you, and we give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 27, what we're about to read here are instructions from Moses to Joshua and the people of Israel before they crossed into the promised land. Again, remember, God had forbidden Moses to cross into the promised land. Moses would see it from a distance. God would take Moses to heaven, but his foot would not come into the promised land until actually the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament. But there's a reason behind all that. Moses represents the law. Joshua, his given name, Yahashua, means the Lord of salvation. He's a picture of Christ. Jesus' Hebrew given name was, in fact, Yahashua, the same name. And so only through Jesus do we enter into the promised land. There's a lot of typology and symbolism there. But, but Moses nevertheless gives instruction to Joshua and the people of Israel. When you get into the promised land, I want you to do something in particular that the Lord instructs. And so here's what we read in Deuteronomy 27, verse 1. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. In other words, it's, this is, they're plastering. They're going to plaster these stones. And here's the reason. Verse 3, you shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. And therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal, now notice this, Moses is even specific. Here's where you're to do this. On Mount Ebal, you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Now go to Joshua chapter 8. We left off at verse 30. And we left off at the place where Joshua is about to do what we just read there in Deuteronomy 27. So I wanted to give you the backstory so you know as we read here from Joshua 8, starting at verse 30, why does Joshua do this? He does it in fulfillment of the command that Moses told them to do once they had settled into the promised land. And after they had conquered Jericho and Ai, Joshua now says, all right, We've now taken the plain area of the promised land, and we're going to go to Mount Ebal, and we are going to do exactly what Moses told us to do. 
Now, when they go up to Mount Ebal, and there's an adjacent mountain to it called Mount Gerizim, I'll put it on the map for you, he's going to take them about 20 miles uh, slightly northwest of where they presently are there in Ai. So this is quite a hike. He's going to take them the 20 miles or so, 25 miles or so, up to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where he will do as Moses instructed. And so read here with me verse 30 of, Cho- of Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. By the way, why is that important? They were to, uh, they were to make an altar of natural stone, but they were not in any way to uh, hew the stones or to shape the stones or to chisel the stones because there was to be no man-made effort contributed to this altar. There was to be no presence of man's work, so to speak. So therefore, they would only take stones as they found them, raw and unfinished, and they were to make and build this altar. And upon this altar, they were to offer, look at what the rest of the verse says, verse 31, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. They're worshiping him. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he, that is Joshua, wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written, which Moses had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel, and afterward... He, that's Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Now, I want to point out a few things here. First of all, uh, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is a city known as Shechem. Shechem has biblical significance because when God formed the nation of Israel, uh, from the seed of Abraham, when God called Abraham, who, remember, was, Abraham was just a Gentile. He was not a Jew. The Jewish race came about because God foreordained that the seed of Abraham should, uh, should bring forth a race of people, a nation of people that had not existed up to that point, the Semitic people, the Jewish people. And when God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees in the region of Iraq and said, I want you to go to the land I'm going to give you, Abraham didn't really know where he was going. He just started walking. You know, when you don't know what to do, just take one step at a time. And as God started to reveal to him, as Abraham was obedient and walked, Abraham first came into the promised land at Shechem, Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. And it was there that Abraham built the first altar to the Lord. Genesis 12, verse 7. So Shechem is a very important place in the Bible. First place where Abraham settled when he came into the promised land, leaving Iraq to come to Israel. 
It is there that God said to him in Genesis 12, 6, every place you put your foot here, this is the land that I'm going to give you and to your descendants. And for that, in Genesis 12, 7, Abraham builds an altar and worships the Lord. Now today, Shechem is called Nablus. Nablus is in what is today called the West Bank, or we would say Judea or Samaria. Uh, And Nablus has a population of about 125,000. It's almost entirely uh, Muslim population living there in the West Bank. And so that is Shechem, that is Nablus. Shechem in Hebrew means shoulder or, or the upper part of your back. And it is believed that it is called that because Shechem is built on the shoulder of Mount Ebal. Now, Here's a modern picture of what Mount Gerizim next to Mount Ebal looks like, and the city of Shechem is in the middle. Uh, And the base of these two, they're not really huge mountains, they're kind of hills, but the base of these two hills are only separated by about 500 yards. So it's not a huge separation, and so Shechem kind of spills out there in the valley between these two hills and is built along the shoulder of Ebal. And again, that's probably why Shechem means, means a shoulder. But again, these two mountains at the base are only about 500 yards apart. And it is here that Joshua is instructed, and he fulfills what Moses had told them back in Deuteronomy 27, of, right, of, of taking some stones, plastering them. Now, this is not the altar. These are different stones. Plastering these stones, and then chiseling, writing on the plaster... The, the law of Moses. Now, there's a lot of debate about what exactly did he write. Because remember, Moses was inspired to write the first five books of the Bible. Are you telling me that Joshua's chiseling out Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Probably not. Most Bible scholars think not the entire thing. The book of the law that it makes mention there, that he, that he wrote all that is written, the end of verse 34, in the book of the law. So most Bible scholars believe one of two possibilities. Either Joshua wrote the Ten Commandments, which is very plausible, very likely, that what he, what he basically wrote on these two stones that were plastered were the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of the book of the law. Either that, or he wrote all or a portion of the book of Deuteronomy. If you, 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 you turn back to Joshua 8, but if you're able to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 27, I want you to notice with me that right there, when Moses gave instruction in advance to Joshua and the Israelites, when you do eventually get into the promised land, I want you to plaster some stones, I want you to chisel the words of the law, if you'll notice that One of the things that it says that he did was they had to read the blessings and the curses. That was part of the instruction. Well, if you look at the Ten Commandments, there are only two commandments that really talk about consequences. The commandments just kind of read very simply and plainly, this is what the Lord commands. So I don't know how many uh, curses they're really reading because it it doesn't really read like that when when you look at the Ten Commandments. However, when you look back here at Deuteronomy 27 and 28, after the first part of of Deuteronomy 27 that I just read with you, then if you look at following in verse 11, it says, curses pronounced from Mount Ebal. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it continues blessings on obedience. And then the end of Deuteronomy 28, it's a whole long rest of the chapter on the curses for disobedience. So... Since Moses modeled that then in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, where he reiterated the law of the Lord, and then he actually 
um, you know, had them read and recite the blessings and the curses, it makes sense that when you go back here to Joshua chapter 8, that when Joshua has these stones that he has plastered over and he is writing the summary of the book of the law, yes, perhaps the Ten Commandments, but I think probably more than that, I think he's writing Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which lists the blessings and the curses, because here's what happens. He puts half of the people on Mount Ebal, this is what we just read here in in Joshua 8, he puts half of the people on Mount Ebal and half of the people on Mount Gerizim. They're separated by about 500 yards in the valley. In the middle of them, there in the valley, are the priests, the Levites, holding the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, again, was symbolic of the very presence of God. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that God dwelt between the cherubim. So the Ark of the Covenant was very sacred and symbolic of the very presence of God. And and you have to picture this whole scene here. you got half the Israelites on Mount Ebal, half on Mount Gerizim. And when Joshua would read the commands of God, the law of the Lord, because they're rededicating their lives now that they're in the promised land. They're recommitting. They are understanding that they are recipients of this divine covenant of God. As he reads this, the people on Mount Gerizim speak forth the blessings of associated with obeying these commandments. And the people on Mount Ebal speak about the curses associated with disobeying these commandments. So that between the two, which by the way, in the valley that forms this natural amphitheater there between Gerizim and Ebal, they would have been able to hear each other. They are hearing the commandments of God and the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience associated with those commandments. And here's something interesting. First time I went to Israel, I went here to Mount Gerizim and Ebal. I don't take our groups there anymore because it's part of the West Bank, and sometimes it's a little uh, difficult to get in and out of the West Bank, especially because we have Jewish tour guides and we have uh, uh, Messianic Jews who own the tour company in Israel, and across the side of the bus says Sarel, which means Prince of God. So that's not always welcomed in the West Bank. But the first time I went to Gerizim and Ebal, I noticed something that you can't really see very well in this particular picture because it depends on what the season is. But in the springtime, when everything is green and lush in Israel, after you get past spring, you get into the summer, everything looks brown and dry. But in the springtime, when things are green and lush, Mount Gerizim is flourishing, and Mount Ebal, nothing grows on it. To this day, Ebal, and this is how you can always remember, which was the mountain of blessing, which was the mountain of curse? Ebal, think evil. Ebal is where the curses were pronounced. Gerizim is where the blessings were pronounced. Ebal is a place of desolation. Ebal is a place of just dry, arid conditions. Gerizim is a place of flourishing trees and vegetation. That's the way it is, you see. When we obey God, it goes well for us. We flourish. When we disobey God, it does not go well for us. It is the mark of death. Ebal is a picture of death. Gerizim is a picture of blessing. And Joshua takes the people there to recommit their lives to the covenant of God. That if you obey him, it goes well for you. If you disobey him, it doesn't. That is not to say that obeying God means everything is going to go perfect in your life. Because we still live in a fallen world and there are difficult and dreadful things that happen even to the most committed Christian who loves Jesus and lives according to God's word. But it it is safe to say that if you deliberately disobey God, you invite hardship into your life. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. 
So even though, you know, if, if the reality is that because we live in a world that is fallen and thus sinful, and that thus there's terrible things that happen in a fallen sinful world, if by virtue of living in a fallen sinful world, I am going to uh, come in contact with things in the course of my life that are not always wonderful and pleasing and, and are, are sometimes difficult, why would I want to add on to that by disobeying God? You see how that works? So if, if life is difficult enough, because Jesus even said, in this world you will have trouble, right? But then he adds, take heart, I've overcome the world. If life itself can at times be difficult, why do I want to add to my own difficulty by disobeying God? Because then I'm just inviting more hardship into my life. So it's more favorable for one to obey God and his commandments, and it is uh, more um, dreadful for us when we deliberately disobey God. And so that's the point of what he's doing here. He's wanting people to verbalize. Here are the blessings, here are the curses. It goes well for you if you obey. It doesn't if you disobey. And so in the whole assembly there, and, and I love also, it, it talks about there at the end, uh, the last verse of chapter 8, that it was read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. In other words, again, at any point, people could have turned to the Lord. There were some who did, and they were brought in as proselytes to Judaism. Those are the strangers. Those are, quote, the aliens. Those are the ones who were not Jewish by birth, but they could become Jewish by conversion because they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and so there was great provision made for people who were not just solely Jewish. Again, Rahab is, is, the, is the perfect example. Because when you see now what happens into chapter 9, uh, uh, people, you know, it, it, it could go better for them if they would just surrender. I mean, that's just the story of life. It goes better for us when we surrender to God. It doesn't go well for us when we thumb a nose of God and when we're obstinate and rebellious towards Him. So this is what happens in chapter 9. Let's keep reading here. And I'm going to read uh, through the whole chapter, comment very little, and then come back and focus on two particular elements of this chapter. So it's only, what is it, 27 verses long. So here we go. Verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, okay, now, now they're on the, on the uh, uh, western side of the Jordan River, in the hills and in the low land and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, and then it mentions all these various people, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Termite, you know, they're all there, right? <laughs> when they heard about it, okay, so the testimony of God is, is making their way, making, making its way to their ears. When they heard about it, that they gathered together to fight. No, don't, don't do that. To fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I.E., they worked craftily. All right, notice that. I'm reading New King James. If you have an ESV, it says, they acted with cunning. The NIV says, they resorted to a ruse. Okay, so here's what they do. And they went and pre pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. 
And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. And then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And so they said to him, From a very far country. Okay, now this isn't true. This is all part of the ruse here. From a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites and who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Okay, now stop for just a moment. They're giving true testimony. Again, they are recognizing the power and majesty of the Lord God Almighty. They have an opportunity, instead of resorting to a ruse, to bend the knee and say, we want to worship your God too. The same could have happened to them as happened to Rahab. But instead, you got a bunch of the kings of the area who want to fight Joshua instead of surrendering. And you have these Gibeonites who are resorting to this ruse, to this, their, this cunning pretend thing that we've come from a distant country. We've heard about the Lord, your God, and all of his fame. They don't have to go through with all of this, but this is what they do. Verse 11, therefore, they're still talking here. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours, we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy and these wineskins which we filled were new and see they are torn and these are garments and our sandals that become old because of the very long journey Oh my, where's the Academy Award, right? And then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. Notice, underline this in your Bible. They took some of the provisions. They tasted the the moldy bread, right? But they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. All right, now, here's, here's what's happened up to this point. These other various nations, the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites, they all get together and like, we've we got to fight these people. We know about the Lord, we know about the fame, but somehow we think we're going to be able to join forces together and conquer the Israelites. So let's join forces. What do you say? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, because they all live there in that territory. So again, it's tragic because they could have surrendered to God, but instead they they want to fight God and they want to fight God's people. All right. So that's that group. But among them spins off one group, the Gibeonites. They're also from that very region. They don't live in a distant land. They live right there. But they decide, here's how we're going to spare our lives because you guys are nuts. You guys want to fight the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the Lord. You want to fight the Israelites. You guys are nuts. We're not going to do what you're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to dress up in old tattered clothes clothing, worn out sandals. We're going to look like we've come from a distant land because they aren't going to kill people from a distant land. So we're going to let them think that we're from a distant land. We're even going to take moldy bread with us. And then we're going to lie to them. We're going to say, yeah, the day we left, this was hot right out of the oven. Can you believe this? This was Panera bread fresh. And now look, 
Now look, it's all got mold on it because that, that just goes to show you how long our journey's been. Oh, our aching back, our aching feet. They're going through that whole routine, right? They splash some dirt on their face. They're like, we're, we're from a distant land. And when the leaders of Israel are listening to this, and Joshua among them, it says they went ahead and they sampled the provisions. They tasted the moldy bread, but they did not inquire of the Lord. They did not seek counsel from the Lord. Do you know that we can go through life relying on our five senses, and you can only get so far? There is a sixth sense that God has given us, which is discernment, and you can only get discernment through prayer. When you inquire of the Lord, not all things in life are going to be able to be figured out by just using your five senses. That's only good for what is going on in in the natural, in the physical. What we need is wisdom from above. What we need is discernment. And that's going to come when we inquire of the Lord, when we seek the Lord. So just hold on to that because this is the mistake that the Israelites make. They sample the provisions. They look at the clothing. Yeah, that's pretty worn out. Yeah, look at the sandals. Yeah, that's pretty worn out. Let me look at your moldy bread. But they did not stop and inquire of the Lord. And so verse 16. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard, the Israelites heard, that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. And now their cities were Gibeon, Shephira, Beroth, and Kirijim Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them. Why? Because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. So you see what's happening here. The, 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 the people of Israel are up in arms. They're like, these people live among us. We should be taking them and conquering them. And the leaders are like, no, we can't conquer them because we made an oath to them. And they're like, you did what? Yeah, we made an oath with them. And so now we got to stick to our word. Verse 19, then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Here's what we will do. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. Notice the emphasis here. And the rulers said to them, said to the people, let them, uh, said to the Gibeonites, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. So they're, they're trying to find some compromise here without going back on their word. They're like, yeah, we were duped. Okay, we admit it. We didn't inquire the Lord. We sampled the provisions. We looked at their worn out clothing and we were duped. But now we can't kill them. And now we can't conquer them. Because we gave them our word. Yes, we were duped, but we gave them our word. And so what we will at least do with them is allow them to live and subject them to hard labor. They're going to be woodcutters and they're going to be water carriers for the rest of their lives, but we can't kill them. In verse 21, then Josh, verse 22, then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them, to the Gibeonites saying, why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And so they answered Joshua and said, 
Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you, from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands, do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. And so he did to them. And delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. The Israelites wanted to kill them. Like, no. And and Joshua's like, nope, not going to kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now, our time has escaped us, but I'm going to leave you with this, okay? Listen very carefully. There's two elements happening in this story that we must tackle next time. It can't be next week because we got Ken Starr with us, but two weeks from tonight. And these are the two elements. Number one, the importance of hearing God. Okay? The, probably the number one question I get is, how can I really discern the voice of the Lord and, and know what God's will is? Because that was the fault of the Israelite leaders. They did not inquire of the Lord. They did not seek counsel from the Lord. So we're going to talk about how do you really hear from the Lord? Because it's important that we discern the will and the wisdom of God. We're going to talk about that. And then the other thing that is the companion element to this story is the importance of keeping your word. We have a way today of getting around things. You know, any good lawyer today would look at what happened here and void the contract. Okay, this is, this is null and void because, because there was deception here. You, this was, you misrepresented the terms of the deal. You deceived us. And for that, this contract, this binding agreement is null and void. That's the way it would go down today. And, and, I'm, and I'm not suggesting that, that there aren't legitimate reasons why something should be made null and void today. But the emphasis that God places here is on the importance of keeping one's word when you swear an oath and when you make a promise. And so next time we get together, we're going to talk about both. How do you discern and hear the the will of God and the importance of keeping your word? Because even though the Israelite leaders were deceived, they weren't off the hook for being true to their word. And so how do you navigate that? And so those are two very important elements from this chapter that I don't want to get lost, but because the time has run out, that's where we're going to leave it for tonight. And uh, you can read and study, and we'll come back together for that in two weeks. And then next week we have, we have Judge Ken Starr with us. So let's, let's pray for now. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. And when we see what the Israelites got into here with the Gibeonites, let it be a strong warning to us that we need to be careful to seek you, to inquire of the Lord, to not just simply rely on our five senses to evaluate things and to try to understand things, but thank you, Lord, for that sixth sense you've given us of prayer, to be able to discern things that are not easily recognizable in the natural. And, and Lord, as, as we come back together later to understand the importance of 
being men and women of our word and how words are important to you. Making promises and oaths and swearing things, Lord, as, as the Israelite leaders did, and you, you still held them to account. And so we, we need to understand this, Lord. We need to understand the weight that you place on words. And we thank you, Father, for, for the Bible. We thank you for our time studying it together tonight. We pray you'll be with us, watch over us, protect us from the enemy. Continue, Lord, to draw us near to you. We pray that we would always strive to be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you all.